Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The legacy of the businessmen who built Hong Kong are all over the city. Bankers work in Chater House, named after Paul Chater, the Armenian businessman behind much of the city's land reclamation, among many other things. While the Kowloon Shangri-La Hotel sits along Modi Road, named after Hermuzji Naroji Modi, a Parsi immigrant who helped found the University of Hong Kong. And that's not including figures like Robert Hotung, the half-British, half-Chinese magnate who found more power in his Chinese identity. The story of Hong Kong is more complicated than what the British or the Chinese might assert. Countless migrants from all over the world come to Hong Kong to build the city and make their fortunes. Voting England's Fortunes Bazaar, The Making of Hong Kong, tells the stories of these communities of Armenians, Indians, Parsis, Portuguese, Eurasians, and others who sat between the Anglo-Saxon and the Chinese majority. Voting England has been a journalist in Hong Kong and South Asia for years. As a historian, she has focused on the diverse personalities and peoples that have gone into making Hong Kong a cosmopolitan Asian metropolis. She is also the author of The Quest of Noel Croucher, Hong Kong's Quiet Philanthropist, as well as several privately published works of Hong Kong history and biography. Today, Bodhi and I talk about Hong Kong's story, the city's early Wild West, or perhaps Wild East days, and the communities of men and women that built the city. So, Bodine, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, you know, I, I want to start by by getting a sense of what Hong Kong is like in the very early days of it being a British colony, the period that you cover in your book, um, Fortune's Bazaar. Um, this is obviously, you know, it's 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 before when Hong Kong is is the gleaming uh, skyscraper film metropolis of the day, even before kind of um, the post-war period where you get this massive influx of Chinese um, migrants from mainland China. Um, so in these kind of very early days, what's Hong Kong actually like? Brilliant question. And I wish everybody who first landed in 1841 had left a perfect diary that we could all consult and really get a good feeling for. But of course, what we have to do is deduce from available sources. Um, and what we do know, at least initially from the British side, is uh, that you know there was very little on the island, and there were very few ideas about what to do with the island. Uh, the goal for taking Hong Kong was to have a place to store opium. Uh, so it could even just be a floating warehouse, and it would all already be solving the problems for the traders who were pushing to take Hong Kong. Um, however, we do know from other studies that have been done that there were about four, maybe max 5,000 people already on the island, and they were mostly in the areas that we now call Aberdeen and Stanley, they were either fishing folk or um, they were, I mean, a bit of sort of basic farming, like harvesting grass for fuel. There was some granite cutting. And of course, this is before the foreigners turned up, uh, there was piracy and smuggling. And once the foreigners turned up uh, after the first opium war in Canton, uh, there was even more piracy and smuggling, obviously, <laughs> uh, but it was given a legal veneer because by then it was a British colony um, and it was founded on this idea of free trade, which means at least free for those with the power to enjoy their freedom. Um, and so the point initially was to have a place to store primarily open opium. There were a few other trade goods, but obviously that was the main one. 
Um, and there were very few things on the shore and very few places to live. Um, the first few settlements along what is, in fact, the northern shore of the island, so what we now call, you know, central Wanchai, et cetera, um, initially match sheds and gradually enough workers turned up out of China to move stones and start building homes. Um, the actual core of the city, well, it rather depends who you were. If you were one of the foreign traders, you would have probably a trading house on what is now Queen's Road Central. Um, there was uh, also then on Queen's Road Central uh, the original Hong Kong club. Uh, there was uh, the cathedral was one of the earlier things to be built, but actually before the cathedral was born, uh, a few half kilometers up the hill, what is now in what we call Soho, um, the first mosque was built, which is up Shelley Street, you know, up the escalator. Um, and there were various other temples. Manmo Temple, of course, was one of the earliest. So you had these different pockets of uh, settlement and you had people arriving off ships uh, every other week, maybe from Macau, from Canton, but also from South and Southeast Asia. And this is the bit that I get quite carried away with in the book, um, which is that we're not just talking about um, a handful of British people and a bunch of Chinese from China. Uh, we're also talking about the people who were already doing a whole lot of this trade uh, in South and Southeast Asia. So the movement of not just opium from India through Southeast Asia and up to China, but of course, long before that, for hundreds and hundreds of years, trading routes uh, were taking all kinds of products out of the forests and the oceans of the South Seas, uh, taking them to other markets, sometimes nearby, sometimes further north, sometimes as far as China, but sometimes back to India. Um, and so there was a whole shifting mass of people, very many different diverse kinds of peoples. Uh, so Muslims out of even the Middle East, Jews from the Middle East, Armenians, um, Malays, of course, and what used to be called Manila men, but we would now call Filipinos, um, and people from all of the Southeast Asian maritime trading world, they were also busy with coming off the first ships into Hong Kong. Also, what we like to call Portuguese or Macanese, people from Macau or further afield, maybe from Gaul or even Pune and Goa and so on on India's western coast. And, of course, also Parsis who were in northwest India, who had hooked up with people who were, for example, like the Jardines, the original Jardine, William Jardine. His best business partner was Jamsit G. Gigi Boy, um, who's a Parsi from northwest India. And he and his whole community also had already been in China, but were also keeping their eye on the opening of Hong Kong. All these different people were turning up on the shore in the very first few years of Hong Kong. So you can imagine it must have been rather fascinating. I know you read you read your book and it feels I mean, calling it the Wild West seems um, like a really <laughs> bad misnomer. But um, geographically but, difficult. Yeah, but yes. yeah, I know. Ge geographically speaking, it's a big misnomer. Yeah. But but I do want to talk about kind of some of these some of these different communities that popped up. Hmm. Um, I do want to ask about the, because you mentioned, you mentioned the Parsis and but I do want to talk about the Portuguese specifically um, because they, they don't get the privileges that other European communities get. And I wonder, we've, we've had previous guests talk about the Portuguese slash Macanese community, but I wonder in your research kind of where, 
kind of what this community's place was in Hong Kong. Well, yes. And again, it goes back to long before Hong Kong. So mm-hmm. when you look at the whole sort of history of imperialism across different parts of Asia, uh, the Portuguese were just so far ahead of the British um, and had settled in all sorts of really key Asian port cities like Malacca, for example, particularly important for Portuguese, um, and had moved on to Macau. Uh, and so some were um, still entirely Portuguese, straight out of Portugal. Some, of course, over a few generations had stayed in different parts of Asia and India and Southeast Asia and Macau, and of course, therefore, had married locally and started their own families, and there had been, therefore, mixed uh in you know mixed families as a result um all of these people generally and what i had to learn early on is oh no i'd rather be called portuguese rather than macanese well it depends some people prefer also to be macanese instead of portuguese but um their contribution early on is really well i mean one of the first people who i describe as uh in my words fresh off the boat is is um leonardo delmada and he comes off the boat in 1841 because he is the top clerk to Charles Elliot, who was the British superintendent of trade at that point, who actually um, took Hong Kong uh, according to the treaty and did all these first initial things like the first land auction in June 1841. Um, Elliot is is um, someone who's been completely sort of left out of, of the records in many ways um, because London later was really annoyed that he'd sort of made do with Hong Kong and that he should have made a much better deal after the Opium War. But anyway, the point is, Elliot's clerk was Leonardo Delmada. Now, what you can do... Uh, is traced from young Leonardo and his brother. I mean, these guys are in their early 20s and they move from Macau to Hong Kong, which is then virtually nothing um, because they think there'll be more opportunities. There's a good job with what seems to be the British government, such as it is at that time. Um, And other members of their community, of course, follow or join. And a lot of them coming out of Macau, they were in these really sort of crucial occupations, uh, particularly printing. Um, And that's because there was a Jesuit college in Macau that taught the guys how to run printing machines at that time. And so the original government printer was also Portuguese, Noronha. Um, And a lot of the early professional uh, occupations where you needed indeed clerks and printers and a, a certain level of management and working in banks and understanding how systems worked and bureaucracies worked, that that was from the Portuguese. Now, what's also important about them is, of course, uh, they have a very strong sense of of family and their own culture and food. And so that also came to Hong Kong with them. And it meant that there was, of course, intermarriage amongst themselves, but also with others who were also arriving in Hong Kong. But it was a really important building block in what became a much larger sort of more cosmopolitan community. And and that's, of course, one of those dodgy words, what is cosmopolitan? What do we mean by that? But what you find with a whole lot of the communities that went into the making of Hong Kong, whether they were Portuguese or Parsi or Jewish or Muslim or Christian of other kinds, is that they had a very strong sense of their own community, their own faith, at the same time as they were very open with uh, very open with mingling with other communities 
not always to the extent of full sort of marriage and relationships and families, but often indeed a lot more mingling and mixing going on than than later versions of the history have led us to believe. Well, let's talk about some of that mingling and mixing. I mean, you know, how did Hong Kong society and and the British colonial administration kind of tr- understand and treat you know Eurasians of of mixed heritage? You know, those who were um, right mixed you know western and chinese mm. there is one person in particular who i will ask about later um but in general <laughs> i know in, who you mean but but, but yeah. in general but in general um mm. who how, how did how did the um how did society yeah. and kind of and the administration kind of treat uh these right. individuals well i mean the thing is and i guess um this is partly what's important when when one is sort of studying history in particular is that there are different attitudes at different times. Mm-hmm. So a few hundred years earlier, before Hong Kong was a twinkle in anybody's eye, um, it was entirely normal for uh, the foreign traders who were turning up on you know, the Malay Peninsula or the East Indies in, in what became Indonesia and so on, or parts of India. Of course, the foreign traders would hook up with a local woman, not, not least because often it was the women who were very important in local markets in terms of doing business. In different parts of Southeast Asia, you'd find that the women actually were important in the trading and exchange business. Um, And so, of course, you would want a local partner. And wouldn't it be marvelous if, indeed, she provides the full service? Um, And there were different ways of organizing that. And that was considered perfectly normal. Even in the very first decade or two in Hong Kong, um, that sort of arrangement was also reasonably normal, although it was a bit different because uh, the women in the case of early Hong Kong, most of them are to some degree or another, and of course, each case is different. um, They are basically trafficked into Hong Kong. There's not a whole lot of choice for for Chinese women in the 1840s and 1850s. Um, And in fact, a, a Chinese woman academic has explained to me in great detail that, you know, at that time, women were always owned by somebody. It was either her father, her brother, her husband, or indeed her pimp. Um, And one way or another, uh, she would also be sent or brought to Hong Kong and would have to find a way to make a living. And it's pretty obvious the only way, the only chance she had was through different variations of the sex industry. So, of course, there were uh, children as a result of these liaisons, usually with foreign traders. And of course, the women were usually left in horrible circumstances with very little support, having to bring up these kids themselves. Most of the the ones that we know of who made it into into the records um, had the benefit of a mother who was smart enough to make sure her kids of whatever racial mix went to school, got educated, and found a way to get ahead as a next generation, as a next phase in in the making of Hong Kong. Um, some women, of course, had no chance whatsoever and had miserable, horrible lives. Um, but and of course, occasionally, <laughs> occasionally you had a foreign trader who did actually do the right thing and would support the mother of his children and would uh, make sure that she was looked after. And from that comes this euphemism the protected woman. And of course, you want to believe that they're all being protected by the men they're having to sleep with. But of course, as you know, it won't be always the case. Um, but the protected woman was was someone who was not just 
working in a brothel and having to take whatever she got. Um, a protected woman had probably just one relationship with one foreign trader for a while, for at least as long as he was there. Um, in actual fact, some women were smarter than that, and they had several so-called exclusive relationships. Um, and they made sure also that their children got ahead, and some of their patrons uh, did buy them the property that enabled them to live comfortably as they grew older and to make sure their kids grew up into proper members of society. So early on, in answer to your question, Eurasians were uh, looked down on because what it means is your mum was a hooker. Um, it means that in some way or another, there was a commercial transaction going on, which is why you were born. Uh, so, of course, that was looked down on. And in fact, even until quite recently, um, much uh, the, the most important pioneer of, of researching these kinds of families was a member of one of them, a guy called Peter Hall. And he came out with a book in the 1980s called In the Web. And he was knocking on his his aunts and uncles and his parents and his, you know, all sorts of relatives doors all across Hong Kong and saying, you know, tell me about grandma or great grandma or, you know, and most people didn't want to talk about it. Um, there was this aspect of of shame. Um, on the other hand, uh, it's very clear that before the end of the 19th century, some of these offspring, um, perhaps, I mean, of course, it's always debatable, but to, because of the, the difficult childhood, because of the difficult origins, because of that level of deprivation and also discrimination, uh, were wildly successful, were incredibly well-educated, uh, became very wealthy, became very smart, and in fact formed what I would call the late nineteenth century elite of Hong Kong. You know, it's funny. I remember kind of remembering back to the kind of the the um some of the in the earlier chapters of your book, kind of how um I'm going to use the word seemingly tolerated, although there's a lot of problematic stuff associated with that. But I was it the the where was it one one merchant gave another merchant a portrait. Of one of these protected women to his to his business partner, he was like a very strange thing to. Um, mm. No, to no, do, no, but... no. I mean, for the men, of course. Let's have this clear. For the men, it was entirely normal, and there was no shame, uh, and it was um, absolutely not a problem. And the man you're thinking of, indeed, he worked for Jardines, and it was time that he was leaving town, um, and he was he was handing over various things to his colleagues, including a portrait of his of his obviously favorite woman. Um, so now that was something that a few decades later would have been more um, less likely to have happened. And uh, I mean, to simplify grotesquely, you know, you can blame sort of Queen Victoria and the sort of cultural things that came out of that. Um, but uh, others would like to say it's because uh, gradually other foreign women started turning up in Hong Kong as wives and partners of some of the other foreign traders. And then, you know, some men think that some foreign women can't handle the idea, whereas in fact, of course, some foreign women have have had to and have done very well, even helping to, there's another case in the book um, of a woman, a British wife of a guy helping to bring up uh, the mixed race children that he has had with her previous uh, lover, a Chinese woman, before he married her. So, um, there are, I mean, it's all according to individuals, but uh, and of course, fashion and what people think is is manageable. But but certainly for the men, there was there, and you could argue to this day, there's still no shame involved. Um, and there is a certain character, one of my favorites in the book, uh, Belilios, 
um, his his life gets a little bit complicated because he he's a, originally from a Venetian Jewish family. Um, his parents moved to Calcutta and are in the opium trade there. He moves on from Calcutta to Hong Kong in the 1860s. He's already married his good Jewish wife in Calcutta. He leaves her behind there for a while because he's just got to go off and check this business opportunity, which makes perfect sense. Um, and he's dealing with opium in Hong Kong. Now, sure enough, he gets to meet uh, a woman who's involved in the family with him he's trading. And uh, so he has a whole family of, of really interesting children um, with this woman, with a Chinese woman in Hong Kong. And then, of course, the wife turns up from it, from India as well. Um, so it does get a bit complicated. Now, the point, there are two points here which I find really interesting. One is it it was no skin off his nose. He was a member of the uh, Legislative Council. He was on the board of the Hong Kong Bank. Uh, there was no shame either in the opium or in having his his local woman and a whole family with her and, and indeed running parallel lives. That was quite all right. The second point, which I find even sort of more important as a historian, is that the records of, of Mr. Belilios later when he dies, when there's obituaries done in the Times of London and so on and so forth, nowhere in any of those sort of official records of his life does his whole Chinese family get a look in. It's just not mentioned. So you think, gosh, so think about all the other men we think we know about and imagine what's a very strong likelihood is that they actually have a whole second life that none of us know about <laughs> because it's not in the records. Um, whereas, in fact, his Chinese family becomes incredibly important in the making of Hong Kong. The offspring that he has with that woman and who they marry and and their offspring, you absolutely get a, a multicolored map of virtually every possible ethnic group uh, and key figure in the late 19th, early 20th century Hong Kong elite. So uh, this this was the norm, whether it was talked about or recorded or not. So there's a couple, in fact, this answer and the previous answer segue into um, the particular historical figure I want to ask about next, who is um, Sir Robert Hotung, who is of mixed heritage. Uh, but but and I know it's it's simplistic to say that he embraced his Chinese identity more than his um, European one, but but he he definitely plays up the fact that he is um, at least half Chinese. Um, and then he obviously <laughs> goes and has great business success in, in Hong Kong. So what do you mind kind of tell quickly, just tell us the story of of, um, of Robert Hotung and his and his uh, yeah, he's business a success in Hong interesting Kong? One. Yeah, hmm. I mean, he's he was basically the richest, richest man of Hong Kong. Uh, you know, around 1900 and, and after that as well. So he was incredibly uh, significant in that respect. Now, he indeed, his mother, look, we don't even know her full name. Can you believe? Um, and she was a, a variation of a sex worker and her her man was this Dutch Jewish guy called Bosman who did the rather typical thing of, of in fact, not protecting his protected woman. Um, he was with her for a couple of years, had a few kids, and then just sort of went off and disappeared and left her literally holding the babies. And one of them is Robert. And Robert clearly uh, felt that strongly and uh, was determined that it wasn't going to hold him or any of his siblings or half-siblings or, uh, you know, wider clan back. Um, he quite... 
uh, and he was clearly a smart guy. Uh, he did very well at the, the local school. And there's an important point about Hong Kong that there were schools in the mid and late 19th century that took in uh, at least boys. The the story of girls' schooling is something else, and of course, nowhere near as cheerful. Um, but at least boys of all kinds of different racial mixes and origins, and you know, they didn't check whether the parents were married or anything like that. No, these schools actually gave a, a very strong, old-fashioned, of course, but uh, strong basis of utterly bicultural knowledge. I mean, both in Chinese and English, and learning, you know, of course, how to read and write, how to how to deal, how to do business, how to uh, express oneself, and so on. So those schools existed. Robert went through them. So did his various siblings and half siblings. Um, and he, I think, got the idea. Uh, that, well, he wasn't going to be held back in any way by these origins. Um, he said about, I mean, to what extent this was deliberate, you can only guess, really. It looks to me pretty deliberate that, look, we're going to have a dynasty here. Um, I'm. He pretty well made up his name. Uh, and he, other various siblings and half-siblings all took the same Ho Tung or Ho name, um, the Ho Kwok, Ho Kang Tong, and so on. Um, he, the secret to his wealth in the beginning was that he was the comprador to Jardines, which means more than just a middleman. He's also investing on his own behalf, but he is uh, the intermediary between the foreign traders and the local markets. And through there, a lot of business and a lot of wealth can be accrued. Um, so he started with that. He started then sharing out those positions with indeed the, the brothers, the cousins, the half brothers and so on. Um, one of his daughters at one point said that he chose to uh, accentuate his Chinese identity because he knew that he, the Chinese would not disown him. Whereas if you were trying to say, oh, I'm British, uh, when you're quite clearly half Chinese, that that would be more difficult in a British cultural uh, setting. And I think he was probably correct with that. But at the same time, um, what I find vastly sort of in a way amusing about Robert is uh, he basically played it both ways all the time as much as he could. He was Chinese when it when that was to his advantage and he was uh, perfectly able to deal in, in brilliant English with the British and take all the British honours, the knighthood and so on, uh, when that suited him. So, you know, he was a perfect chameleon. He he did what it took to to get ahead. And if sometimes that was helped by a Chinese identity, um, that was indeed the dominant one. Um, and what's fascinating to me also, he did have a brother who made the same sort of choice and said, well, I'm going to choose one of these things. I'm not going to say I'm Eurasian. I'm, I'm going to be either Chinese or I'm going to be British. But this other brother of his, chose to be British and called himself by an entirely English name, Walter Bosman, and studied in England, became an engineer, had a whole sort of Western uh, career. And, and what's fascinating to me is that Robert is really annoyed about this. He hates it that Walter has, has taken the Western route, whereas Robert has chosen to take the Chinese route. Um, anyway, he, he very clearly uh, was happy to to I think the the other advantage, of course, of, of playing the Chinese identity more strongly uh, was uh, the ability to build a dynasty. So his first wife, who who was with him uh, all his life, um, 
they never had any children. She brought in a second wife, the concubine, a cousin of hers, who then had a whole lot of the children. Um, and, of course, he then later on had all sorts of other women. It's hard really to keep track. And um, it was, again, it was no impediment to his career. Um, so he is a he's an interesting character uh, because of the choices, I think, that he he felt that he needed to make about identity. Some would say he he fought for you know for the rights of Chinese and so on because he wanted to live on the peak when it was a, a reservation only for Europeans. Um, I think he just was really I, I'm not sure that he was really fighting for the rights of an entire racial group at any time or a community. He was definitely making sure that he got ahead, whatever it took. Oh, and I hadn't realized until I think just now that that um, the lineage goes down to, well, I mean, not him personally, but the family is also where we get Stanley Ho from. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, that was another. <laughs> so um, there's a there's a question, of course, when you have a so-called, you know, famous family like the Ho's, um, who when you take in all the intermarriages and so forth, the Ho's, the Lo's, the Ho Tung's, the Hoys, the Lo's, the Lo's, and so on. I mean, there's a the family trees are just I I I had nightmares over them when I was doing this book. Um, but um Robert himself was very bright. And then there are brothers and half-brothers who have offspring and who are then, of course, he ends up bailing them out again and again. There comes a point when there's a series of disasters in the 1930s and he just says, look, he's just not bailing them out anymore. So one of those was the father of Stanley Ho, who basically left town uh, because of all sorts of, you know, mess ups on the financial side and not being bailed out. Robert bailed out those closest to him, but not the man who was, in fact, Stanley's father. So Stanley father, Stanley's father left, and it was a much more difficult upbringing for Stanley. He was not born, you know, with the silver spoon. Uh, he was born close to it. And I think that's why you get that incredible drive that Stanley Ho had to make sure that he was going to get ahead. And he managed that through uh, all sorts of really dealing uh, through World War II and the Korean War after that, through Macau, and of course, as we all know, became the sort of king of casinos and transport with Macau. Um, but that's, yes, absolutely, it's the same family. Um, there's quite a few people around town who ultimately would end out uh, related if they choose to claim it. Um, I want to talk about one more of, of these tycoons, um, and if only because... Um, a good friend of mine mentioned that she works at Chater House. And I was like, oh, right. I just read a book about about, about Paul Chater. Um, and obviously his, his name is on a road, it's on a park, it's on an office building in Central. Um, Paul Chater is kind of key to um, the story of, of Hong Kong, um, especially on the infrastructure side. Uh, but also you said he's, he's, he's Armenian from India. Can I, can I, again, what's, what's, what's Paul Chater's story? Well, yeah, he's, 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 I think, in my view, one of the most important people of Hong Kong. He basically dragged Hong Kong into the 20th century, virtually almost mm. single-handedly. Um, and uh, he is behind most of the innovations of uh, Hong Kong land, Hong Kong electric, uh, all kinds of a million other companies, mining, and every single important philanthropy that went into the making of Hong Kong. He, he's an incredible guy. So uh, his parents who both well, you know his forebears you can go back to his 
beyond his grandparents back in in Calcutta um, were important uh, figures in the early again foreign trading in that area in Bengal um, way back to the East India Company and so on um, his own family roots are, are not to be sniffed at uh, he's he's from an established family the problem is that both his parents died in an accident when he was very young um, and so he was uh, put through school through an Armenian charitable process in Calcutta and was in the process of qualifying as a surveyor, um, which was a, a very good sort of business to be in. In, the, in India at that time, it, you know, you were assured of a job in the government, et cetera. It was a good qualification to have, but obviously wasn't exciting enough for our Paul Chater. Um, and meanwhile, his much older sister had already come to Hong Kong and married a guy called Jordan. And of course, you will remember, and rightly, Jordan Road. So Dr. Jordan, his wife, was Chater's older sister. So uh, Paul Chater turned up in Hong Kong in the 1860s. He was first a clerk in a bank where he met uh, his most long-lasting friend and business partner was this uh, Parsi gentleman called Modi, um, and of course, there you have Modi Road, <laughs> um, and Modi is most famous for coughing up the money to found the University of Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Chater and Modi met each other on the job in the 1860s and became uh, and left their jobs at the bank uh, to become independent traders on the exchange. Chater, and this is what I found so fascinating. So he's Armenian, Modi is Parsi, Um and the reason why Chater could go independently as an exchange broker was because he's good friends with the Sassoons, who, of course, are Baghdadi Jews. So you've got a variety of trading diasporas. They're all turning up at the same place at the same time. They're absolutely getting on with each other and they're making new things happen. So, And that's something that seems to be essential to Chater's character, which is that he's extremely collegial. He's good at bringing people together. He's charming and friendly. Um, and incredibly smart and, and visionary. I would call him visionary. So, you know, all sorts of governors and civil servants had tried to find a way to extend uh, the actual foreshore of Hong Kong. So, uh, you know, listeners now in Hong Kong will know where the tram line goes. Um, and you have to sort of imagine that just in front of the tram line, that was the water. So all the land between the tram line and what is now the foreshore, not all of it, but a large chunk of it, is in fact thanks to Chater because he found a way, because he was incredibly well embedded in the whole merchant community. He had huge face. He was very successful and wealthy, but he was also, as I say, collegial. He was he brought people together. He was a good people to bring people together. Um, he was also very close in government. He was in LegCo and the Executive Council. He would dine at Government House. I mean, governors would need his advice before they could do anything really important <laughs> in terms of building Hong Kong at that time. In the late 1900s, early, uh, sorry, late 1800s, early 1900s. So he uh, had this idea of how to organize both the government on the one side and the merchants on the other so that everybody agree and we could build this new land, which is now the central business district. So, And and he then founded the company, Hong Kong Land, with his good friend at Jardines at that point, John Bell Irving. Uh, They founded the company, Hong Kong Land, in order to build buildings on this new land that he was creating. I mean, 
insider trading is a very sort of late 20th century concept, let's just say that. Um, so the buildings that we now know as Prince's Building, the Mandarin, and indeed, as you rightly say, Chater House, and before that, it used to be Swire House, uh, and before that, Union House, uh, and there were King's Mansions, and what is still St. George's Mansion, and so on. All that land in Alexandra House, uh, and indeed where the Hong Kong Club sits, so you've got uh, Statue Square and the Hong Kong Club, all that land is thanks to Chater. And, and of course, the fact that he qualified out of high school as a surveyor may explain why he could work out, hmm, how deep is this water? How much uh, rock and landfill are we going to need to fill it in to build this new land? Um, what's that going to cost? Who's going to pay for it? You know, that kind of question. He was he was really good at that kind of thing. And he got everybody in agreement. He built this new land. He built the companies to build the buildings. Uh, he is, I think, not as well known in Hong Kong as he should be. Um, I, I think he's a really crucial character. Unfortunately, he didn't actually leave a whole sort of family and multi-generational dynasty behind him. He, uh, he married a woman... Uh, she was in her 30s when he was in his 60s, and they were obviously good friends. But um, he's a kind of a one-off, unfortunately. And when he died in 1926, I mean, the stock exchange closed, everything closed. The governor led all the eulogies. I mean, this is this is the big man of Hong Kong. And he's, he's not known uh, well enough, in fact. So I'm, I'm now kind of jumping ahead um, to kind of the, the end of your book. And you... You kind of end your book, I mean, not not like end end, but, but in terms of the the major historical research kind of ends with the end of the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong. Um, and so I guess I want to kind of like the Japanese occupation obviously changes a lot of things. Um, it forces a lot of these communities to have to kind of review and revise their role in Hong Kong under the Japanese occupation. How did how does the war and the occupation kind of force all these different communities to to rethink their place in the in, in the city. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and I I actually would love to spend more time in this subject because, um, you know, late twentieth, early twenty first century, uh, all this talk about Hong Kong identity and Hong Kongers and so on, um, this was already all happening in the first hundred years. These kinds of people I'm talking about, who, in my view, really, uh are the building blocks of the community that was Hong Kong, for example, before World War II. By the 1930s, you've got long-settled, multi-generational communities of lots of different people, Portuguese, Parsi, Armenian, Jewish, Malay, all kinds, as well as the Chinese. I mean, please don't anybody think I'm ignoring the mm. Chinese, just that they've, of course, been written about, and I'm I'm focusing on those who have not been written about enough, um, but who were there from the very beginning. By the 1930s, they're all quite clear um, that, of course, you know, they've made their homes and their lives. They were born in Hong Kong. They have no reason to ever think of ever leaving Hong Kong. They haven't indeed no concept of, oh, we must, you know, go home one day to where? To Lisbon? To to Bombay? I mean, no, that's not on people's minds. Hong Kong is their home, has been for a hundred years of their family, usually by this time, by the nineteen by the time World War II turns up. And so what's fascinating is the extent to which there is no doubt in most of their minds that they are really committed to Hong Kong, uh, to the extent of being willing to die for it. I mean, quite literally. 
there's a Eurasian volunteer regiment. Um, they are volunteering as part of the underground, as the resistance, as, you know, risking, obviously, uh, torture and death if they're caught. Um, but also very committed to sort of whether or not it's the British in charge, that seems to be sort of a secondary point, but um, this is their place and this is their Hong Kong and they're, they're, they're putting their lives on the line for it. And that, that is clear by the late 30s, early 40s, right through World War II. And uh, to the extent that, for example, you know, the Rutenji family, we've all heard of the Rutenji Hospital, um, they were not seen as British uh, by the Japanese, and so they were not interned. They instead uh, spent most of their money. They ran an open house. You know, the, it's still there, Dina House on, on Duddle Street in central Hong Kong. Uh, it was a refuge for anyone who didn't have anywhere else to stay. They could be there. Um, now, Mr. Ratanji and his son at that time were occasionally being imprisoned and tortured because they were running in money and supplies to their friends who were detained in Stanley internment camp or in the military internment camps, uh, so civilians or military. They were risking them, their lives to help uh, others who they saw as you know fellow Hong Kongers, albeit of different racial religious groups, it didn't matter. Um, and that was just, uh, I mean, people didn't seem to think twice about that. There's even this fascinating community of, of what's called the borrower uh, traders who have their own, uh, it's a Ismaili sect. They have their own worship, place of worship on, on Wyndham Street. Um, they run still to this day one of the very, the oldest company of Hong Kong, Abdulali Ibrahim and Co. Now, they hid radios on behalf of British um, bankers and resistance people in their own premises. Can you imagine what a risk that was? I mean, it was shocking. They did heroic things. They were marvellous. And it's all because they all see themselves as Hong Kongers already in the 1940s. So, I mean, there are all sorts of difficult choices that, frankly, any of us in that situation would have to make. You know, to what extent are you going to take that kind of risk? Are you just going to sort of keep your head down and hope for the best? Um, or are you actively going to um, help others and try to, you know, make sure that things come out for the best and so on? So, and people also at a governmental level uh, had huge dilemmas. Uh, some some guys still turned up to the office every day in Hong Kong all through the war, but did absolutely nothing, of course, uh, because there was no business to be done, um, and hoped that things would get better. And others were more actively in the firing line. Some of the leaders of the, the local community were um, sort of called on by the Japanese to um, try to make the Japanese look good, you know, so that there were so-called committees that were helping to feed the locals. And people like Robert Coatwell, who had been a member of the Legislative Council and Executive Council before World War II, um, was basically asked first by the British, you know, please stay on in Hong Kong, don't run off to Macau, as Robert Ho Tung did. Um, please stay and try to deal with the Japanese to try to make sure that rice still arrives and people still get food and so on. Um, he was later accused by some of, you know, having been too enthusiastic with his banzais at these Japanese committee meetings. But, you know, that's a difficult thing. <laughs> You're under occupation uh, from a rather uh, brutal regime. So, but at the same time, you're trying to make sure the place still works and people still get fed. So, incredibly difficult choices that everybody had to make. 
Um, and straight by the and what fascinates me also is that uh, everyone assumed that at some point they would win the war and you know they would get their Hong Kong back, and they did. Uh, and nobody actually fled Hong Kong in any big way. They, in fact, came back to Hong Kong and rebuilt their lives. I mean, from Lawrence Kaduri to uh, these uh, Portuguese who had spent the war in Macau, they all came back. They all started actively rebuilding Hong Kong. You don't get the first real sort of exoduses of some of these people until uh, 1967, uh, when the Cultural Revolution was overflowing into Hong Kong, mm. that kind of started freaking people out. But uh, what I call my people, the people I'm writing about, um, they were Hong Kongers. They were wholly committed. Mm. You know, I want to I want to end by kind of you 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 sort of positioned your book between two, I mean, very simplistic, but two very simplistic narratives about Hong Kong. The first being um british built it it was a fishing village the british built it the, they came in and they made hong kong the city it is today um a narrative that's probably come up a bit more often given recent events in hong kong um but also on the flip side then you have the chinese narrative which is hong kong was hong kong always was chinese built by the chinese it's since been returned to china isn't this great um your book is kind of in between those two narratives and kind of looking at those like well, it, it kind of yes, pushes back I mean, against, against both of those. So I guess, you know, I guess yeah, no, deliberately when we so, leave those I people mean, out, like what, what 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 do we miss about Hong Kong when we leave the people in between those narratives out? Well, I mean, it, it's a deliberate placement on my part, uh, precisely. I mean, whoever's in power at any time, uh, you know, has the ability to write or rewrite the history according to how they'd like it to be seen. Um so, of course, for a long time in, in British perceptions of, of themselves uh, at the height of empire, of course, they thought they were they were marvellous and that they were wholly in charge. They were sort of ignoring a whole lot that was actually going on around, um, you know, just a few streets up from the central business district. Um, I would say that there was a lot more important things going on than just the chaps sitting at the club or going to the cathedral or the counting house. So, um I think what we miss out when we only take uh, the the narrative from the political power elite, um, you miss the real vibrancy and the real actual sort of day-to-day, -day, how were people living, um, who was getting to know whom and what was the result. And uh, I think that is... Uh, I mean, not only just a much more fun way to look at the history, and it's much more interesting, but it's but it's also much more real. I mean, most of us, most of the time, uh, anywhere, are not in that little handful of people who think they're in charge of everything. Most of us, most of the time, are living our complex lives in our own ways. Um, and to try to capture that and think of, well, who were those people? What were they doing? What sort of lives were they leading? You have to get into this sort of granular person-by-person uh, person approach and pretty well bedroom-by-bedroom. Bedroom. Um, and what that, that positioning also is about is that um, – there was a, and he's a, he's a much better historian probably than I am. But at one point, uh, a particular writer had concluded that oh, Hong Kong was a tale of two cities that um, it worked because you know you had the British on one side and you had the Chinese on the other, um, and they didn't bother each other. You know, they just sort of got on with it. 
Um, and I think the point I'm trying to make is that what's forgotten in that sort of picture of Hong Kong is that, in fact, those British in one corner and Chinese in another were probably sleeping together most nights. Oh. Well, I think that that observation is a great place to end our conversation with uh, Vodine England, <laughs> author of Fortune's Bazaar, The Making of Hong Kong. Vodine, I actually have a series of final questions for you, which are, uh, where can okay. people find you and where can they find your work? And finally, what do you think the next project might be? What's next for you? Right. Uh, where can they find me? Well, I live in Amsterdam. Um, but... Um... Of course, I should have all sorts of marvelous social media. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, but I think the thing is to go to a bookshop and get the book. That would be ideal. Um, Kelly and Walsh in uh, Pacific Place has has definitely stopped this book. Um, so that's where you can find me. Um, next projects are probably continuing on this theme of, of port cities, Asian port cities. Um where you get all sorts of interesting different people turning up and having interesting, complicated liaisons and relationships between communities, between individuals and so on. And I'm curious about what are the real sort of essentials for a functioning port city? Do you, do you need, uh, I mean, you need openness to different peoples and faiths and cultures. That's certainly the truth. Um, I would like to think you need openness to to different uh, sources of information. Uh, and I think that's true in a genuinely trading, functioning marketplace. You need uh, reliable information. You need a kind of a freedom of the press. Um, I would certainly want to argue for that. And I think you need freedom of thought as well. People need to be able to innovate and have new ideas. But anyway, I'm going to look at a bunch of port cities and see if those ideas prove true. Let's find out. Yeah. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. It's not called Twitter anymore, is it? <laughs> It's called something else now. But follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network and newbooksnetwork.com. We're on all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Nicholas Wilson, author of Modernity's Corruption, Empire, and Morality in the Making of British India. But before then, Bodine, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Nicholas. A pleasure.